Please uh, look with me again at Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And while you're turning there, singing a, a couple of hymns like Sweet Hour of Prayer and Softly and Tenderly may make you think that you've awakened and found yourself in a strange place, this Presbyterian church. But I have this marvelous CD by the group Anonymous Four which I highly commend to you, which is 12 or 13 rich, gospel, truth-filled, old, early American, mid-American, early 20th century gospel tunes. So go get it. I get no commission for this. It is rich and beautiful, and I encourage you to pick it up. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. We're looking at this passage. I'll just remind you that what we're trying to extract here is some principles for living the Christian life. So read with me at verse 1, Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you again for this this word, this rich and tightly packed, rich uh, piece of your word. Would you now grant your spirit, would you help us as we seek to unpack it and understand it and apply it to our hearts? And then, Lord, as you apply it to our hearts, we plead with you for the grace we need to live out the implications in all of our living of the things we find here. So help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There used to be in in the periodical, the magazine Christianity Today, there used to be a a page. It was a page-long thing that was there. uh, Every issue, I don't know if it's still there because I only occasionally see a, a, a copy of Christianity Today, and I see those because... One of our regular ten- attenders periodically gives me uh, a copy of Christianity Today, and I just haven't noticed whether this, whether this thing is still there. But it was a piece, a regular piece entitled Eutychus and His Kin. And uh, if you remember the story of Eutychus, it's a great story. It's a story that preachers take great comfort in, frankly. Um, the story of Eutychus you can find in Acts chapter 20, and Eutychus is this young man who is listening to Paul preach, and Paul keeps preaching, and he keeps preaching, he keeps going, he keeps going, and Eutychus is sitting too near the window, and he falls asleep, and he falls out the window, and and from the text, you know, you get this idea that he's fallen a couple of stories to the ground, and everybody rushes out of the building fearing that he's dead. I mean, it's, you know, it's a tragic thing. 
So the Apostle Paul, who is the one who's been preaching, rushes downstairs and lets everybody know that the boy's okay, he's alive. And then he does this remarkable thing. He goes back upstairs, he has communion with everybody, and he keeps preaching. He keeps going. Eutychus uh, is just sort of a symbol of some of the oddities that show up in the church, I suppose. And I remember seeing this... um, this pen and ink drawing years ago, uh, on that page, Eutychus and his kin, a kind of a cartoon thing, a drawing of a, of a middle-aged preacher in a rumpled suit, standing next to his pulpit, looking out at his congregation, saying, this is the fourth Sunday I've preached on the transforming power of the gospel. Why do you look like the same old bunch? (laughs) This is my fourth sermon from Romans 12 on the transforming power of the gospel. Why do we feel like the same old bunch, right? Now, you couple that with this, this urban, maybe it's an urban legend, maybe it's a true story. It's a story that's told about Charles Spurgeon and this woman who I guess was particularly unhappy with Spurgeon on this particular occasion, and she came up to him after the service and said to him, Mr. Spurgeon, I'm awfully glad you're a Christian. I'd hate to think what you'd be like if you weren't. Now, honestly, honestly, that's kind of where we find ourselves in the midst of this Christian life, right? We find ourselves sort of in between. I mean, we, we hear about the transforming power of the gospel, but we, but we kind of know in our bones that there's a whole lot of transformation that has yet to go on in us. That's where we are in this Christian life. But then we look back and, and we are sort of like Mr. Spurgeon. Um, we're not all that we're going to be, but thank God we aren't what we would have been apart from Jesus Christ and his gospel in our lives. Right? I mean, I, I don't know if you ponder or consider this or think about this. Where would you be were it not for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Where are you headed? You're headed to something spectacularly glorious, but you're not there yet. But you're also not where you were. And that's where we find ourselves in the midst of this Christian life. We find ourselves, if we're really entirely honest, we find ourselves sort of in between. And if we have any other view of ourselves, honestly, folks, we're just not keeping in step with the gospel. If, if, if you view yourself as the Venus or the Adonis that just needs a little dusting and polishing, remember Michelangelo, remember that illustration? Then you're out of step with the gospel and with gospel realities. But on the other hand, if you are, if you are laboring in the midst of, of guilt and shame and, and if, Guilt and shame have so engulfed and overwhelmed you that you're paralyzed and afraid to speak or move or do anything else. In your own way, you're denying the realities of the gospel as well. We're in process here. We're emerging. And what we're doing in these sermons 
recognizing that the gospel really is about change, what we're trying to do here is extract some really, really important principles, laying down some principles for change. How do people change? How are they changed? How does that happen? And in the text, as we make our way through the text, as we come to the text this week and continue to look at this little passage and try to unpack it, I'm going to do three things here this morning. Big surprise. I want to retrace our steps briefly, and then I want to look at a couple of words, phrases. As we continue to make our way through this, I want to look at this word body that the apostle uses in the text and then I want to, want to look at this, these things that modify that word. He says we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. We want to look at what he's talking about there. What does he mean? And then we want to look at this odd, quirky phrase, which is your spiritual worship. What is he talking about there? What does that mean? So those three things. Retrace our steps a bit. Look at this word bodies. And then look at this phrase, your spiritual worship. Retracing our steps. Let's, let's just remember where we are, where we've been. Paul says, I urge you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercies, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Remember, first of all, we've said this already, but let's remember, first of all, that the gospel is about change. That's what we saw three weeks ago. When we looked at this word that you find in the text that's translated transformed. It's the word from which we get our word metamorphosis. It appears four times in the New Testament. A mere four times. Two of those times are in the Gospels. Once in Matthew, once in Mark. To describe what happened to Jesus when Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration was transformed. And Luke describes it in this way. Luke tells us that his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. What happened at that point is that the humanity of Jesus, which veiled his glory, dropped like a sheet. And the full refulgent splendor of Jesus, his His incarnate glory being exposed was exposed. He was transformed. He took on an alternate kind of visage or appearance. And Peter's response, as we said three weeks ago, was this is a good thing. Let's stay here. It's what we're made for, folks. We're made to bask in the glory of God. We're made to view it, see it, be captivated, ravished by it. And it's actually glory that was lost. We ask, what is it that's distinctive about human beings? What is it that that is so different about human beings that they are differentiated from the rest of the creation by virtue of this thing? And I'd suggest to you that in addition to a whole bunch of other things, like our ability to conceive thoughts in our minds and put them in words and be able to communicate those things so that they can be heard and understood, in addition to all of those kinds of things, the truly distinctive thing is that you were designed and intended to be robed in, clothed in the very glory of God. I'm reading Isaiah in my Bible reading. I know that repeatedly God says, either explicitly or implicitly, my glory I will share with 
no one else. But in the context of that, that reluctance, that refusal to share glory is simply this. God is not going to share his glory with competitors, with those who would compete with him for the honor and glory of being the God of heaven and earth. But when he created you, he created you as a dependent creature with a capacity to be ravished by and clothed in the beauty of his own glory. And it's that glory that was lost. So that when you come to 2 Corinthians 3.18 and the apostle says, But we, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being metamorphosized transformed from one degree of glory to another. He is telling us about our destiny. He is telling us about the final outcome of this salvation that God in Christ has secured for us. And in Romans chapter 8, he tells us what is the final outcome of our salvation when he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present world are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed, not only to us, but the preposition means in us. Glory was lost, and God's whole purpose through Jesus Christ is that we might be restored to the condition which we had originally so that we might be glory bearers. That is where we're headed. And that's the first thing. This is about change. And then the second thing that we looked at is this. We must always keep in view the mercies of God. Paul says, I urge you, brothers, in view of the mercies of God, on the basis of the mercies of God, And what are all of those mercies? Well, those mercies are all of his gracious works, all of these things that he has done in and through Jesus Christ, loving us, redeeming us from sin, reconciling us to himself, justifying us, adopting us into his family so that we become heirs with Jesus, co-heirs with Jesus of all of the riches of the Father's kingdom, all of which is received by faith. And as we said a couple of weeks ago, and I mentioned it again last week, all of these acts of grace are expressions, evidences, proofs of the Father's tender-hearted compassion and mercy toward those whom he loves. That's the sequence, if you remember, from Ephesians 2. It's love manifesting itself in mercy, loving those who are in distress, and then feeling the weight of their distress to such an extent that you are inclined then in grace, unmerited favor in grace to relieve the sufferings of those who are distressed. That's just beautiful to me, folks. Love becomes mercy And mercy becomes active, so active that the Father gives His own precious Son. And the Son, having the tender heart of the Father toward those who are in distress, fully embraces, 
fully subscribes to the Father's program for the salvation of a people. Jesus weeps over the distress of those whom he loves. You see a picture of it in John 11 at the grave of Lazarus. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And then we said last week that with these mercies always in view, these mercies which remind us not only what God has done, but they tell us what he is like with those mercies in view, we present ourselves to God. And the background to this language is Romans six twelve through 14. Because we have tasted, because we have experienced this mercy, because it is real, more real than the chairs upon which we sit, we no longer present ourselves to our former master, sin, who is a hard master, who breaks hearts, who crushes people under a load of guilt. We no longer present ourselves to that master. We no longer present ourselves to our former husband, the law, who does nothing but expose what is wrong, tell us how bad we are, but does nothing to relieve our distress. No, we turn in a different direction and we present ourselves to Jesus, who is a sweet master and a loving husband. We present ourselves to him. And so at any given moment, and this is where we ended last week, at any given moment, I am like Mary before the Lord. This needs to be worked out a bit, folks. At any given moment, I am like Mary before the Lord. See, Here's the danger, the very great danger in this is that I I hear this gospel and I read this gospel and I hear of these riches and I begin to contemplate and think these things and the impulse of my heart, the impulse of my soul, the movement of my will, as I put it to some folks recently, is to go try to run a marathon. My natural inclination is to say, what do I do in view of this? What I suggested to you last week is that there is another thing to be done, another choice to be made before I think about what I'm going to say or do or anything else. And that prior choice is this choice. As I stand before the Lord, like Mary, contemplating what it is that God is calling me to, as Mary contemplates this incredible declaration, you will be the holy, you will be the mother of the Holy One of Israel. You will bear the Savior of the world. What does she do? Before the Lord, she says simply, Behold the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. Be it done to me according to your word. That's what it is to present myself now to this new master, to this new husband. This is not the whole of the Christian life, okay? We're going to talk about the bad places that can go next week. It can go bad places. Are you enticed to come back next week? We're not talking about being completely passive, but we are saying that there is a right kind of way to think about a right kind of passivity in the Christian life. And moment by moment, in any moment I find myself, I stand before the Lord 
And I say, behold, the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your will. Which being translated means, do in me by your power and grace what I cannot do in me apart from your power and grace. Okay? So that's where we've been. It's about change. It's about keeping these mercies of God in view. It is about presenting ourselves moment by moment before the Lord. And what is it that we present? And here's point number two. We present our bodies. We present our bodies. That's what Paul says. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Now, maybe you don't do this. But I not only struggle to understand what it is that people say in the scriptures, many times I ask myself, 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 because I am a multiple personality, I ask myself, why did he use that particular word and not another word? Some of the translators and commentators will try to suggest that when Paul uses this word body, he's sort of trying to take in the whole of who we are as human beings. Present yourselves, the whole of who you are. But I really don't think that's what he intends. And there are a lot of folks who are in agreement with me about this, so I'm not standing over against the whole of the church when I suggest this. But the word in the text is the Greek word soma. For those of you who may be familiar with Chico's, you know their other little store that sells that funny clothing that men don't wear, soma. Soma, body, it's, it's a term that refers literally to physical existence. It's used of human beings, it's used of animals, it is used to refer to heavenly bodies, the planets and the stars. It can be used in a metaphorical way to describe, for example, the soma of Christ, the body of Christ, meaning the church. But there's no doubt in my mind that the apostle is referring here specifically and literally to our physical bodies. Now, why would he do that? Let me give you two reasons. Did you do your homework this last week? You don't have to show your hands. Nobody gets kicked out of church. But did you do your homework assignment? Last week, I suggested to you that you begin at verse 3 and you read through the end of chapter 12 of Romans and ask yourself the question, how many things in this list of admonitions through these verses, how many of these things can be done without a body? How many of these things can be done without a body? The first reason Paul uses the word body is because we are embodied beings. We are embodied beings. We use them. We have them. And it is through them, through our bodies, that either righteousness or unrighteousness will be seen. 
We can conceive all kinds of things in our minds, in our hearts, in the soulish aspect of who we are. We're going to come to the soulish aspect of who we are in verse 2 as Paul talks about the mind and what it means to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And he's going to go beyond that into verse 3. And he's going to use the word think three times in verse 3. I encourage everyone not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with so judgment. We're going to get to the soulish side of things, but right here and right now, Paul wants for us to be reminded of this fact. We are embodied spirits and our bodies manifest either righteousness or unrighteousness. You can't do most of what is in these verses without a body. Look at verse 6. Can you prophesy without a body? I mean, if I just sit up here and think a sermon, do you intuit it? Let's try that some Sunday. You'd be relieved, probably. You'd say, well, we're out of here. You can't do, you can't prophesy, which is to proclaim and herald the true riches of the gospel of God. You can't do that without a tongue and without lips and without a mouth and, the, you know, this small little cavern that does all of these things with sound as air comes up from the lungs and is propelled through that cavern out into the world. Some people have better caverns than others. You can't do it without a body. How about serving? Can you serve without hands, without feet, without muscles, without tissue? Can you do acts of mercy without a body? Verse 10. Can you outdo one another in showing honor without a physical existence? Verse 14. Can you bless without a physical existence, without words? that are formed in the same way words are formed when one preaches or prophesies? Can you weep with those who mourn without real tears, physical tears? Can you give food and drink to your enemy by simply thinking about it? No, you see, your body is who you are. It is not an extraneous thing, extraneous to your existence. That's why the idea of the resurrection, a bodily resurrection, was so significant and so important and is so much at the center and the heart of who we are as Christians. And this sort of leads to the second thing. The obvious thing is, I can't do the stuff of Romans 12 without a body. But here's the second reason Paul uses this This word body. Paul lived in a world in which the thinking of the people was deeply influenced by Greek philosophy. And particularly by a dualism that arises out of Plato. I mean, it's just true, okay? I'm just telling you. I'm not showing off. I'm just telling you. That the pervasive worldview among the Greeks was a dualistic view of the world in which the spirit was valued and the material was denigrated and disparaged. It was a worldview in which salvation was viewed as deliverance from the corrupting influences of the body. The soul is good. 
the body is bad. And in Paul's day, there were two ways in which this worked itself out. Indulgence. There were those who said, because the spirit is good and the body is bad, body doesn't matter. We're going to escape it someday, so let's just indulge it. Hedonism. Feed it. Feed the bear. Hedonism. The other way that this went, with this dualistic view of human existence, soul is good, body is bad, various forms of asceticism. Beat it down through self-denial because it is essentially bad and it has a corrupting influence on the soul. That was the pervasive worldview in Paul's day. Right, but that's not Christianity, folks. That is not Christianity. Paul is reflecting in the use of that word what is true, biblical, orthodox, classic, historic understanding of the nature of persons, that you are body and soul, created by God as body and soul, and your bodies are as good on day six as is your soul good on day six of the creation. And when the fall occurred, it wasn't just the body that was plagued and ravaged by the effects of the fall. It was body and soul. And what Paul is saying here is that both needs to be, no, but both need to be redeemed. Body and soul. You know, the resurrection was disparaged, was scandalous to a Greek audience. Read Acts chapter 17, Paul's discourse at Mars Hill in Athens. When he spoke of the resurrection, he was mocked. Why? Because it was unthinkable that a God who is pure spirit would take flesh to himself. Scandalous. But Paul's saying, no. No, it is your body that's in view here. You know what? This way of thinking is actually, sadly, crept into the thinking of the church. Crept into the thinking of Christians. It's subtle, but it's wrong. I've told you this before. There are times when I have been privileged to officiate at a memorial service or at a funeral service. And the night before the funeral service, when there is a viewing or a reception for the family, people will walk by an open casket and they'll say, that's not him. That's not her. And I want to be polite and I want to be careful, but I want to scream at the top of my lungs, oh, yes, it is. That body is his body. That body is her body. And you've heard this before. The great divorce has happened. The separation of things that were meant to be united forever. Body and soul at death are separated. And for the believer, the soul, the spirit, that non-tangible, invisible part of who we are proceeds immediately into the presence of Christ. But this part will lie in the dust. Until when? Till resurrection. Till that body comes out of the grave. Why is there a fourth verse to the hymn Sweet Hour of Prayer in your hymnal this morning? Because the editors left out of our hymnal the fourth verse. 
The fourth verse, oh, this is so rich. Are you ready for this? The fourth verse penned by William someone, his last name I don't remember. The fourth verse penned by the author reads in this way. This robe of flesh I'll drop and rise to seize the everlasting prize and shout while passing through the air. Farewell, farewell, sweet hour of prayer. You ask, why did they leave it out? What's wrong with that? Here's why, folks. Because what is envisioned in that hymn is 1 Thessalonians 4. Passing through the air to meet the Lord Jesus as he descends upon the cloud of glory. But the author of the hymn Pious, more godly than I am, I'm sure, is engaged actually in something that's not Christian when he writes that way. Because when Jesus descends on that cloud of glory, you will not be disrobed of your flesh. You will be re-robed in your glorified flesh. And that's why I changed the verse to read this way. Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, may I thy consolation share till from Mount Pisgah's lofty height I view my home and take my flight. By the way, you can't see anything if you don't have eyeballs. You can apprehend things, but you can't see them. I view my home and take my flight. This robe of flesh will change and rise. To claim the everlasting prize. And shout. And by the way, you can't shout without a body either. Can't see, can't shout. Got to have a body to do both. And you get one. And you pass through the air in the direction of the returning Lord Jesus Christ as he has summoned you out of the ground, reclothed you in glorified flesh that you might meet him in the air. And I said to Ruth Stewart this week, this hymn needs a fifth verse and I'm going to write it. Because as you know, you don't stay in the air forever. You come back to the renewed heaven and the renewed earth, the earth that is freed from its bondage to decay to live with Jesus in the glory of the new heaven and the new earth forever. All of that, my friends, is in that little word, Soma. It's all there. It's what we do when we preach. We unpack. When apostles write letters, they summarize. When preachers get hold of those letters, they preach until Eutychus falls asleep and falls out of the window because they're unpacking what is summarized in the letters. These bodies. And notice this thing that Paul says about these bodies, these bodies of ours. Your bodies matter. I have to say this. I have to say this because we in our culture have our own preoccupation with the body, don't we? We idealize them. We stylize them. We see them on the cover of Cosmopolitan and all of those other junk magazines. We see them in Gold's Gym. We see them on entertainment tonight. We see Venus and Adonis. And we think, ah, that's the goal. You know, 
I don't know what this thing finally looks like, but I'm guessing that the beauty of God's restorative creative power is going to be manifested in all kinds of sizes and shapes and colors to the glory of his creative genius. No stylized, idealized Venus or Adonis, but this body, my body, will be raised. And here are the things that Paul says about this body. He says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What kind of bodies are these? Listen to this. This is so important. I, I really believe I'm right in this. Read the commentators. Correct me if I'm wrong. I know you will. Notice what Paul does not say here. He does not say, present your bodies in order to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. He says, present these bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. What is he doing? Folks, These are the echoes of the riches of the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ in these words. You are a sacrifice. We'll come to that. You are a sacrifice, but you are a living sacrifice. How is it that you are a living sacrifice? You are a living sacrifice and not a dead, decaying sacrifice because you, having been dead, have been made alive. You've been united to Jesus through his death, his resurrection. He is now raised to newness of life, and so are you, not just touching your soul, but touching your bodies. You are living sacrifice sacrifices. Does that mean you're getting younger? No, it doesn't. Paul does this kind of thing all the time. He's always pressing from the future into the present these glorious realities that are ours as Christians. He does it in Ephesians 2. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, raised us up in him, and then what? Seated us with him in the heavenly places. I'm here, dude. No, no, no. You see, you have a different identity by virtue of your union with Christ. You've been raised. You are a living sacrifice united to Jesus who is the sacrifice who died so that you might live. You are living sacrifices. And one day everything that is present in that word living will be fully realized in your life. But it's true right now extending to the whole of who you are. And you are also holy. What does holy mean? Holy means a couple of things. It means to be sanctified, to be separated, to be consecrated, and it also means to be holy. That's you now. Consecrated, set apart, consecrated to God, and hear the echoes of the gospel, hear the echoes of your justification, clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. That's stunning. Living, holy, and acceptable 
right? You don't present yourself to God in order to be acceptable. When you presented yourself to God by receiving Jesus Christ and his finished work, at that point in time, by the grace of God, whenever it happened, that is the point at which you became acceptable. And now in the living of your Christian life, you don't present yourself in order to be acceptable. You present yourself because you are accepted. Living sacrifice is holy and perfectly accepted and acceptable in the sight of the Father because you wear the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what you are. That's who you are. That is what your union with Christ means. It means the totality of your person is being redeemed, rescued, restored, made whole. Is it going to happen in this lifetime? No. No. But it's going to happen. Extending to the whole of who you are. And then Paul says this. He says, this is your spiritual worship. What on earth does that mean? Well, go back and read the older versions and you will read a phrase like this. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Oh, the beautiful echoes of the gospel. Present yourselves to God, which is your reasonable service. Your reasonable service. The word that's translated spiritual, sometimes I just don't understand why people do stuff that they do, myself included. It's the word from which we get our word logic. What Paul is saying is, look, this is who you are. Think about it. Remember it. This is who you are. Given that, it's only reasonable. It's only logical. It only makes sense that one who is united to Christ, having been crucified with him, having died with him, having been buried with him, having been raised to newness of life, you're a new creature. You are a part of the new creation. It only makes sense that you would present yourself. To him, the one who's loved you with an everlasting love. The one who's redeemed you and restored you to the Father. It only makes sense. It's the logical thing to do. The reasonable thing to do. Let me close with this little illustration. I've used it before. I'm going to keep using it until it impacts you as much as it impacts me. It's the story of the very Baron von Rothschild, who was, a, you know, obviously a great financier in Vienna, Austria. And this young man came to him, and he applied to him and appealed to him because he had an invention and he needed somebody to capitalize his vision for this thing. And he was given a meeting with the Baron. And he went into the baron's office. You can imagine how intimidating this would be. And he shared his vision. He shared his story. He shared his hope. And he asked the baron to capitalize his project, to fund him. And the baron looked across the table and said, No, my young man, I'll not give you any money for your project. But here's what I'll do. I'll walk with you through the streets of Vienna. 
I'll walk with you through the financial district in Vienna. And you'll have all the capital you'll ever need. Why? Because of the one with whom the young man was associated. Because of the one to whom the young man had become united. A completely altered and changed identity from an anonymous nobody to a friend of the wealthiest man in Vienna. Folks, what Paul is saying here is that we live this Christian life not in order to be, but we live this Christian life because of who and what we are, the one to whom we are united, whose resources are limitless, That young man had all the money he would ever need. And my friends, by virtue of your association with Jesus, you have all the grace you will ever need for the living of this Christian life. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together.